0: Hi, I'm Stacey Schumacher-Rowan, Editor-in-Chief of Hospitality Design Magazine with HD's What I've Learned Podcast. For this episode, we tow the line of hospitality a bit as I chat with entrepreneur and co-founder of Airbnb, Joe Gebbia. There's no question that what he's built with partner Brian Chesky has been among the most major paradigm shifts in the travel industry since its inception. Hatching the lucrative idea out of personal necessity in 2007, when he was just in his mid-20s, the startup has only accelerated and expanded into much more than an online booking service in the years since. And today, the brand is, quite literally, a household name. My conversation with this brilliant mind spans the first idea he ever tried to sell, hint, it's a cushion, how he recruited his co-founders at the onset of the Great Recession, his love for airbeds, and how Airbnb is evolving to better serve the future. Hi, I'm here with Joe. Joe, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Of course. So with this podcast, we always start at the beginning. Um, where did you grow up and what kind of kid were you? Were you, you know, mm-hmm. was design something that was always an early passion or were you super creative as it, from a young age?
1: I grew up in a really small town in the state of Georgia. A uh, place called Lawrenceville, which is near Snellville, which is close to Wilburn, which is near Norcross, which is kind of close to Atlanta. And it was growing up in the suburb where um, I fell in love with art as a kid. Um, I was always drawing. Um, my parents would say that I, I always had a either a crayon at an early age or later on a pencil or a pen in my hand and was always drawing. And I uh, remember I got to comics when I was really young and would learn to draw from comic books, uh, some of my favorites. And that was that was how I, you know, began to began my journey in in the world of art as, as an artist. Um, and so that path uh, took me many many places early in life. Um, one was in the state of Georgia. I got inducted into a program for high school students called the Governor's Honors Program, where you do college level coursework as a high school student. Uh, and it was during the summer program where I really fell in love with the notion of actually making this more than just you know a love or an interest, but actually turning this into a career. And so the professor there, uh, her name was Donna, she had a profound impact on me. She told me about the Rhode Island School of Design. And uh, she said, you, you need to go here. And I said, I don't even know where Rhode Island is. <laughs> it's somewhere <laughs> up in the Northeast, but I, I couldn't draw it on the map. Um, <laughs> And because of her, I started to research it and understood it to be one of the top schools in in the nation and the world. And, uh, set my sights out to, to go there to study fine arts. Um, ideally to be a painter. Mm -hmm. I was fascinated by, uh, by the fine arts. And I always had this, this idea in my mind of, you know, one day exhibiting my work in a gallery in New York City somewhere. Um, and so, uh, yeah, basically the seed was planted. Um, and the rest was just up to me to figure out how to get into the school.
0: Yeah. Were your parents creative or did they, were, was there anyone else in your family that kind of planted the seed or,
1: you know, they would not describe themselves as artistic. <laughs> They're creative <laughs> in their, their own aspects. Um, but certainly, um, not self-described as artistic. Um, i actually, we think came from my grandfather, uh, who, um, I'm named after and, nice. He, he, um, I found his sketchbooks from World War II, where he, uh, was, um, um, stationed down in Italy and would draw in his downtime. And so he'd draw these really vivid scenes of life, you know, between the action. It was, you know, wife just drying clothes, sitting around, um, you know, these little vignettes into, um, you know what it was like to be a soldier during World War II, and uh, we found these in my basement one one time, and it was it was one of those moments where it's kind of like an Indiana Jones moment—you <laughs> you uncover some incredible artifact that just blows your mind, and it feels like such a treasure. Yeah. And uh, so, for this actually, for this past holiday uh, season, my my uh, my dad and my family gifted me uh, his sketches and a bunch of, of old black and white photographs of him. So anyway, that was a long answer, but I, we think it came from him. He also drew uh, Hollywood stars back in the 1950s and 60s so with these beautiful portraits of, I don't know, Frank Sinatra and, and a bunch of other, other folks of that era. Amazing. Uh, so I have to cry That's to him.
0: such a treasure. Um, and so, RISD, you figured out how to get in.
1: <laughs> was, it <everything,
0: laughs> was it everything that you thought it was going um, to be?
1: It was, it was way more. Um, yeah, let's see. I got in uh, and, you know, we packed up the car. We drove from Georgia to Rhode Island with all my stuff. Um, my parents dropped me off. I said goodbye. And then there I was, you know, uh, on my own to figure out how this all works. <laughs> um, yeah, it was the first time I'd been, you know, obviously I'd traveled when I was a kid, but I'd never lived anywhere really other than, than the South. And so here I was for the first time living in New England.
0: Yeah you know, in
1: Providence, difference. between Boston and New York. And, like, I was meeting a lot of very different kinds of people. Um, I was getting exposed to things that you just didn't see in the South. Um, and, you know, so it was, like, it was really growing up for me. Um, it was, like, a, a moment of, of independence. It was a moment of um, really getting a more global view of the world um, and um, and really starting to discover myself as a creative just the whole point of the school is to help you find your voice, to find um, and channel all the inner ideas that you have and bring them to life. And I, ironically, RISD, and probably this is true for probably any art school or design school, makes for great training to be an entrepreneur. Somebody hmm. to say become an entrepreneur if they had a creative background. Let's say go, go to design school. Don't go to a business school program. And the reason for that is is actually kind of simple. Um, so studying industrial design and graphic design at RISD, uh, you're basically trained to imagine something that doesn't yet exist and then create it. It could be a website. It could be uh, a consumer product. Uh, but the design process is, is quite literally imagining something that is not in the world, and you need to figure out how to create it and, and make it something in the world.
0: Like right. transition
1: it from an idea in your mind to a page of a sketchbook to a physical prototype and then to a production level product or website. Um, and so it was, you know, five years of, of my dual degree in industrial design and graphic design. And during those five years, it was just honing this. Okay. I can, I can imagine a new kind of idea or new solution to something. And then it was like, I got to go figure out how to make it real. And that is essentially entrepreneurship. Is yeah. you spot an opportunity in the world, a way to do something better, and you have to figure out how you make it, how you make it real. So I, I really have to credit Rizzi for a lot of who I am today. You know, it's uh, it was where I, I did discover myself, discovered obviously great people in the form of my co-founder Brian Chesky,
0: right,
1: uh, who's now our CEO. Because um, when I entered campus, this was back in the fall of two thousand. I knew that I wanted to start a company one day. I couldn't tell you what it was going to be. Um, but I knew having grown up with my parents were both, uh, you could say independent in their profession. They were independent sales reps. So I saw them forging their own path and, you know, they were, they determined their own amount of success. They, they did not have a nine to five job. It was completely up to them. And I remember thinking like, you know, in good months that looked like fun, and on bad months didn't. But in in either case, they they were really in control of their own path. And I remember okay. thinking to myself as a kid growing up, like, "Wow! Like one day, I want to be running my own thing. I want to start my own company." Um, and through high school, I had all kinds of little, you know, experiments. We'll, we'll call them experiments. <laughs> uh, things that, like what? Yeah, like the lawn mower business. You know, mowing the lawns in my neighborhood, and I sold T-shirts my senior year at school. Uh, as a way to, I, I didn't like, I didn't like the, uh, senior t shirt the school provided. It was kind of lame. So I decided I designed my own, figured out how to make it, and then sold it to my friends. Um, made it a couple hundred bucks. <laughs> nice. uh, it's great. <laughs> um, so they're all like, I, there's a dozen stories like that of just finding like little moments to, um, to try things. And even at RISD, the experiments continued. Uh, I remember when I got there, um, uh, I love basketball. I've played, most of my, my life. And I get to, to campus and I, I go into the office of the student student affairs, uh, student life. And I said, hey, I'd love to play on the basketball team. And the guy behind the desk looks at me with this very puzzled face and goes, actually, you know, we don't have a basketball team. And we're staring at each other and he breaks the awkward silence and goes, but you can start one. And I said, really, well, what do I have to do? He says, find 12 other students, uh, who also want to play and come back and bring me the list. And so I basically followed all the steps that they provided for me and within a couple months established the first basketball team at the school in 40 years. Oh. And um, in many ways, it was like my first startup.
0: That's I had amazing.
1: to recruit a team of people, I had to go raise money from the school, I had to uh, operate a, a schedule, I had to do sales calls to convince other colleges to come play us in basketball. It is actually a little bit harder than it sounds. <laughs> we were. We were in, an art school, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and so, yeah, that was uh, that was like a, a bunch of early lessons in like how do you start something up from nothing?
0: Right. Convince
1: convince people to join you, um, motivate them to want to you know you know participate and contribute. And uh, the team the team, by the way, is called the Balls. And they are still going. I'm very proud of this. Uh, All these years later, we're almost 20 years later. And the team has been a fixture on campus um, uh, ever since founding 20 years ago.
0: That's amazing. How many people did it grow to while you were there?
1: Oh, I mean, the the team's always been, I'd say, in between 10 and 15 people. Yeah. Um, But it's it's a good outlet for the students that play and for fans for, for the student body. Yeah. Um, there's not a lot of, you know, Rizzy's pretty intense. Mm-hmm. It's known for its workload. Um, you know, it, it's, it's not for people who are looking to just kind of cruise through a college experience. It, it's my roommate freshman year failed out. <laughs> the work ethic that they mint out of people is next level. It's exceptional. Yeah. Um, and so um, to have a chance to, to kind of get out of studio and, go see a basketball game on a Friday night. It's a, it's a real treat for, for students.
0: That's awesome. Well, congrats, um, on that. That's just leading up to all the success. Uh, so you knew you wanted to do something, but you didn't know exactly what it was. So when you graduated, what did you have a job where you just had, you know, what, what was, what were your next steps after you graduated?
1: Well, I started my first company the day after I graduated and, uh, it was a, a a consumer product that I had designed for a class project and uh, the school actually purchased them from me to give to my graduating class. And it's a, it's a C cushion design. It's called crit buns, okay. uh, which was uh, a term used at art school where you have art critiques or crits yep. crit- for short. Yep. yep. So you put like every morning, morning you pull into drawing class, you pin your homework up on the wall and then you have an eight hour crit which is where you're sitting around on hardwood floors and metal stools discussing the work. And that's that's how you learn. You get feedback from your professor and from peers. And it's kind of the paramount, like it's the crux of any design school experience. And so after a couple of these early crits, my first year at school, I was, you know, eight hours on hardwood floors, not very comfortable. And I remember thinking, man, I, there's got to be a better way. Yeah. So uh, came up with a design for a seat cushion that would work for me and my students students. And um, uh, eventually that was the product that the school bought, distributed. Uh, and I started the company the day after I graduated to to really figure out this mystery of how do you get a product on the shelf of a store? How does that even work? Because the design school environment was very conceptual and theory-based. Right. Yeah, you got it to a prototype, but you never went any further. And that, there was kind of a black box that existed for me that I was, I was committed to decode. I was like, I have to know how this works. So um, I started the company really to just to figure that out and, and say, how does this get to the shelf of the store? What's involved in that? And um, sure enough, um, I had uh, some inventory in my basement in Providence of these cushions. And I, I remember I, <laughs> I walked up to the Brown University bookstore, which is across the street, and I uh, met with the manager and I sat down with my best dress shirt on and my fanciest shoes. And I had you know, my, my sales sheet impeccably designed, ready to go. Uh, and my wholesale price and you know, all these things. And I'm 10 seconds into the pitch. And the manager goes, thanks, but I'm not interested. And leaves the conference room. <laughs> and I'm sitting there thinking, oh my God, is this what it's going to be like? <laughs> like is this how every pitch is going to go and sure enough the next two were very similar to that and at that point I'm, I'm like oh my god what have I got myself into I created this product that works at art schools but nowhere else uh, you know oh crap Yep. <laughs> and then the fourth store I'll never forget it's called pie in the sky it's on Thayer Street in Providence Rhode Island so it's a little tiny gift shop you know like really cool little uh, gifts I walk in and I give the pitch to the woman And she looks at me and she goes, I'll buy it. And I was like, oh my God, I'm thinking to myself, I'm jumping up and down inside, trying to keep my cool. (laughs) She goes, I'll take four cushions. And I go, oh, like amazing. I'm like, I'm elated. Uh, She goes, here's where you can ship them to. And I go, oh no, 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 I'm not shipping these. I'm going to go back to my house around the corner. I'm going to pack them up and come deliver them, hand deliver them to you. And she's like, okay, that's odd. (laughs) But sure enough, deliver them. Later that night, I came back, the store was closed. There was a dim light in the back of the store. I pressed my face up against the glass and there on the shelf was my product. Made it to the shelf of the store. And in that instance, instant, uh, I had suddenly was filled with all of this confidence that, okay, I got it to the shelf of this store, let's go find some more stores. And over the next couple of months, I traveled to Boston, traveled to New York, back to Atlanta, and, um, I was selling this thing all over the place. Eventually nice. I get a call from some of these catalogs that our parents probably get in the mail, right. home catalogs. And they loved it because it was great for like gardening as a kneeling pad, and all these other use cases. Um, and so before I knew it, I'm kneeling hundreds of crit buns at a time out of my garage, <laughs> all by myself, uh, doing everything from you name it. I did it, um, but it was it was a great great experience. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Uh, it was it was an adventure in entrepreneurship.
0: That's amazing.
1: And one of the things that, one of the things that will relate to the what comes next is um, every time I'd have a big win, I, I'd be standing alone in the garage or my apartment, you know. And I thought to myself, the next thing I do, I want to have a co-founder. Mm. I want to have somebody that I can share and celebrate in these milestones with. Right. And that was like a really important moment for me where I said, okay, okay, so the next thing I do, let's find a partner.
0: Speaking of partners, how did you and Brian meet at school?
1: We met through sports. (laughs) I was started and ran the, the basketball team and he was running the hockey team. And I mean, we effectively had the two biggest student run organizations on campus. Uh, at least the most well-known. Right. And so we earned these reputations over the years. Some people refer to us as like, oh, there go the two entrepreneurs on campus.
0: <laughs> Little did they know. Um, <laughs> that's awesome. So what made you move on from CritBuns? What happened to it?
1: Well, I guess this thing called Airbnb started yeah. to take off.
0: <laughs> <laughs> See, put that on the side. That makes sense.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was, like, it was never meant to be a, a big company. It was meant to answer a lot of questions for me. Um, it did. It did. So in that aspect, it was a major success in my book. It was kind of like my own little grad school. Like I created my own little business grad program that was like super applied because it was all, you know, real world stuff unfolding. Right. It wasn't a textbook. Um, but so I moved to, uh, moved to San Francisco in 2006 uh, after uh, f- five years in school and a year after that in Providence, starting the Crip business. And uh, I had a, a six-month internship at a book publisher called Chronicle Books, okay. which anybody in the design world uh, will regard as one of the, uh, you could say, highest-end book design publishers. Like, they do books as objects. They're just beautifully designed, and um, and they want to hire an industrial designer of all things. Who does this? Um, but they kind of got... They kind of could see you know, the future where books in the publishing industry you know, was facing some kind of decline over time. And they thought, well, we need to diversify and think about beyond books. And they thought having an industrial designer on staff would be a way to do that. Interesting. So they got to work on all kinds of things, special packaging for the books and products to complement their books and the retail stores and all those things. But it was a perfect segue into San Francisco and the Bay Area.
0: Right. Um, So was the idea of Airbnb conceived while you were working there or at the end? I know the story has been out there a bunch, but tell (laughs) us in your own words what actually happened.
1: It actually starts in Providence, Rhode Island, believe it or not. Um, So as I was uh, graduating, I had this street sale to kind of get rid of all all the things I was no no longer going to use. And I'm selling some clothes and some art that I made. And It's the end of the day. And uh, I'm ready to go home. But this guy pulls up uh, in this red Mazda Miata. And he gets out and he starts looking through my stuff. And I'm thinking to myself, oh man, would you hurry up? I just want to go home. And we get to talking and he tells me he's uh, doing a road trip before he heads into the Peace Corps. And, you know, I quickly figure out that, you know, he's, he's on a solo trip, doesn't know anybody in the city. And he seemed like a nice guy. And um, I just, for whatever reason, I invited him out to get a drink that night. Nice. Uh, So I took him to, um, it's called the Custom House. It was this old-timey pub in downtown Providence. And we're getting beers, and um, he's telling me all about the Peace Corps. I'm telling him about RISD. And, um, you know, it all sounds interesting. Seems like a good dude. Uh, And as I'm motioning for the check, I make the mistake of asking him the question, so where are you staying tonight? And he makes it worse by saying, uh, actually, I don't have a place. I'm thinking to myself, oh, my and God. I, yeah. um, you know, the hotels are going to be closed. And before I know what I'm saying, I utter the words, why don't you stay in an airbed in my living room? And the minute I say it, I regret it. I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, what have I done? I mean, this guy says he's going to the Peace Corps, but is he really going to the Peace Corps? I don't know what he is. And so before I know it, I'm set him up in the living room. He's on my airbed. Um, I head back to my my room and I'm laying in bed. I'm trying to go to sleep. I'm staring at the ceiling, thinking like, oh my God, there is a complete stranger in my living room. <laughs> what have I done? And at that moment, I leap out of bed and I tiptoe on the floor and lock the bedroom door. Smart. <laughs> I'm a stranger in my living room. Yeah.
0: Not a pet idea.
1: Oh my gosh. So the next morning, we get up. Everything's fine. We have brunch. He goes off to the Peace Corps. He actually sends me postcards um, from his, his outpost uh, in Eastern Europe and uh, keeps in touch. And uh, eventually, he send me a, sends me a picture from his, uh, he was in Chicago, near Chicago, and uh, he's a teacher, and he has my art print hanging in his classroom that he That's bought at the street sale. And he comes back to San Francisco every so often to, uh, to run the marathon, and he stays in my place.
0: That's great. I love
1: that. So when I moved to San Francisco, I was sure to pack the airbed with me. Yeah. And so the airbed uh, made, the, made the journey, and um, uh, you know that one fateful weekend trying to convince Brian to move up to San Francisco from Los Angeles. Um trying to, you know, get the band back together. Uh knowing that look, well, if you put him and I in the same room together, we could come up with something big. Um make big things happen. Um so gosh, it was September of two thousand seven and I get a letter from the landlord. And it tells me it says Dear Joe, your rent is now twenty five percent higher. And at this point, Brian and I had quit our jobs. I left Chronicle. He left his job in LA. I I run run to my online banking account. And um, uh, I see I have a major math problem. (laughs) Rent has gone up here and uh, my income has dropped significantly. Uh, So Brian and I are trying to scheme up ideas of how to make some extra cash. And um, I'm in the living room of our apartment. I've got my laptop open, and I'm looking at the website of a design conference coming to San Francisco in a couple of weeks. And Brian and I were going to attend. And in that moment, I'm looking at the website. It says all the hotels in San Francisco are sold out in big red letters across the top of the website. I go, oh, man, where are people going to stay last minute if you want to come to the conference? I look up over the edge of the laptop into the vastness of our living room. I think hmm well, what if we just take the airbed out of the closet and host somebody and i sent an email to brian he loves the idea we get two more airbeds we'll make it an experience we'll cook breakfast we'll pick them up from the airport um we decide to call it um the airbed and breakfast so we got the url 18 character url do not recommend that uh, to anybody to get a website name that long we made the website in a couple of days it got you know, promoted on design blogs. We had people from around the world emailing us with their resumes, saying, "I want to stay on the airbed and breakfast. Pick me, pick me." I had people calling my phone. I have no idea how they got my number off the internet somewhere, um, trying to pitch me on why they were the, the right guests to stay on one of our three exclusive air beds. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, we, we, we chose three people. They were all amazing. Catamal and Michael were still friends to this day. We had an incredible time showing them San Francisco through our eyes. You know, they, they got to save money when they came. They got to experience the city like, like we did in you know, our right. favorite restaurants, our friend's house parties, um, kind of the antithesis of going back to a kind of secluded somewhat generic room. That could be anywhere in the world by yourself. Instead, they were coming back to our apartment, which was social, it was lively. We we're cooking meals together. Our friends are coming by. They're meeting people. You know, it was, it was com- complete opposite of, of a typical conference travel experience. And so that was the spark. That was, that was where the big idea began. It's like, huh, we had such a good time hosting them. We made enough money to, to save our apartment and not get evicted. They want to travel like this again. Maybe there's something here. And so. Uh, we um, we knew that we needed a, a computer engineer to join us, software engineer. And the guy that lived with me before Brian was named Nate Walsharsik.
0: Uh-huh.
1: We found each other on Craigslist. And uh, Nate was a computer scientist, graduated from Harvard, came out to the bay to get into the startup scene. And uh, we had developed a friendship with, for each other and with each other. Um, and uh, so we pick, I pick up the phone, I meet Nate, I tell him about this weekend experiment. These guests stayed with us and Nate loved it. He thought it was the coolest idea to use the internet to get people offline back into the real world. Yeah. And so the band was formed. We had all the, the talent that we needed. Um, and in 2000, early 2008, we set off to make what is today Airbnb.
0: Amazing. And so, like you did for the Crip um, how did you take it from an idea and really scale it? What what were the beginnings that helped you to get to where you are today?
1: Well, it was insanely hard in the early days where you have a two-sided marketplace where you need supply and demand
0: mm-hmm.
1: in equilibrium with each other. Uh our metaphor that we used is you can't have a successful store if a bunch of customers come in and there's no products on the shelf. Yep. They're not coming back to the store again. Um And you really can't have a successful marketplace if you've got, you know, a lot of offerings, but there's nobody buying them. And so marketplaces are typically one of the hardest genres of internet companies to start for this reason. Um, It just takes an inordinate amount of effort to get buyers and sellers together uh, in a new marketplace. On top of which, ours was, you know, not a typical marketplace. We're asking people to do something they traditionally have not done.
0: Right.
1: Which is to either open your home to somebody you've never met or stay in the home of a stranger. Um, and so that took a while It took a couple of years to really go. <laughs> um, and it was one city at a time. You know, in the early days we would travel city by city, we'd meet our early hosts, the early adopters in our site, and we would learn from them. We'd develop the site based around their needs. Um, their, their requests and what they wanted, um, and you know, we had this, this mantra from one of our early advisors, Paul Graham, which was "make something people want." And in the early days, the best way to figure that out wasn't through surveys, wasn't anything online. It was actually going into the world and talking to people face to face, having conversations with them. Right. We learned so many things from our early hosts that we adapted and incorporated into the site to make it better.
0: Was there anyone back then doing anything similar?
1: Oh yeah, <laughs> Most people maybe don't remember this, but there were a bunch of competitors. Yeah, there were a lot of other little websites around that time that you know we were competing with to try to become because ultimately marketplaces usually consolidate. Right, that's why there's kind of just, just one Amazon, there's one eBay. Um, so it was it was a, it was a race, truly really a race to become the predominant marketplace for homes and experiences all over the world.
0: Why do you think you guys won that race in a sense? And two, why do you think people in 2007, 2008, when you guys started to, well, I guess 2009 too, started to kind of take off? Why, what void do you think they were responding to that you were offering?
1: Um, on the first question, why did we succeed over everybody else? As I look back and reflect on them, it's because we designed for trust. Like everybody was offering relatively the same kind of you know, product, right. the, the same kind of you know, home. Um, and so why, why, were, why were we different? Well, to make people comfortable with booking a home, you had to introduce Olympic-sized trust between two sides of the marketplace, two people. And, you know, we, 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 we fell back on, on what we know, which is design. And I think the other companies fell back on what they knew, which is maybe their technology or marketing or sales or whatever. And for us, we just simply designed a better experience. Got it. Like we, we put the same kind of, you know, gifts in a much more beautiful package. And I think it made it more accessible for people. They could trust it more um i think that was what gave us the edge over everybody else
0: makes sense and then why do you think people responded so well do you think it was the time do you think it was just something else different um, i mean 2008 2009 the recession
1: <laughs> might have yeah, you well, guys it definitely helped us yeah. uh, if you're if you were a host you know if you were a homeowner in 2008 or 2009 and you were out of work because of the Great Recession or your savings have dwindled because of the stock market, um, people became very open-minded about new ways to make some additional income. And so, you know, who would have, who would have known that that was, event was going to happen? Uh, and it certainly, I think, opened people's eyes to this idea like, oh, I have an extra bedroom. It's just sitting there. Why don't I monetize it? Why don't I offer that as an experience for somebody looking to visit my city? And so uh, we actually helped a lot of people. Save their homes in that time. And I know this because they emailed us. Oh. And we, we used to print these out and pin them up on the wall because they were so moving. And so, um, we're like, wow, this is, just, okay, this, this means more to people than we ever thought it would. And this, this has brought some new people's lives that we couldn't have never imagined. And that's still true today. And people have made significant income on our site as a host. And beyond that, if you ask a host, like, why, you know, Eight or nine years later, why are they still hosting? Um, the money certainly is helpful, but there's something else that actually supersedes it at some point, which is the appreciation that they get from their guests. Obviously the reviews they get on our site, but it's a thing even beyond the reviews. It's the invitations that guests give them to visit their city when they're traveling to their country next time. It's the, the thank you notes. It's the bottles of wine, the bars of chocolate that guests leave behind. As a symbol of appreciation for what the hosts shared with them, um, and that's actually I, my theory um, of what what keeps uh, keeps uh, the hosting uh, kind of activity going. Right. Um, is, is, is that? And then on the on the guest side, what need were we fulfilling back in, in the early days, and even at today, true to today? I think that over over time, maybe we'll say over the course of the twentieth century. Travel had become commoditized. And it's most evident, I think, in how it's consumed, which is going to these online travel agencies, the OTAs, and trying to penny pinch on every aspect of the trip, um, without any regard to the experience that one is actually getting. And I feel like kind of hit, hit like some kind of dead end mm-hmm. in the mid 2000s where it's kind of like, okay, we, we can save a dollar on a flight and a dollar on a hotel room, but what's going to actually elevate an experience for me when I travel with me and my family? And I think we introduced something that absolutely answers that question, which is you can now travel and stay in a, par- a neighborhood of a city you've never had access to with a host who will be your guide to help you feel like an insider to the city instead of like an outsider. You know, like tourist zones are just basically like Big spotlights of like, hey, I don't live here. I don't really belong here. But the whole premise of staying with a host is that you have somebody who can help help you understand. You know, this is what you know. This part of the world is. Uh, this is this is what we eat. This is how we talk. This is you know, from the blank. And you know, I've experienced this many times myself on Airbnb. I went to to um, Tokyo for New Year's Eve a couple of years ago, and I knew that going to a place like Japan uh, as somebody who doesn't you know, speak the language, I really wanted a host <laughs> to help orientate me uh, for my trip. And so I booked uh, I booked a, a room with a guy named Rue. And sure enough, he was there to pick me up at the train station. And the next couple of days I spent in, in Tokyo, uh, he helped me see a layer of the city that I, I otherwise would have completely missed. Yeah. And my, my trip became that much richer because of him, because of my host. You know, he took me to his favorite sake bar. I met his friends. Um, um, you know, we, we talked about ideas for his startup. Um, it was just a, a really immersive experience, all thanks to the host.
0: Do you think he knew who you were?
1: Not when he booked, not when I booked, but um, after, you know, during the trip, you know, of course, we got to talking about what we we're up to. And I, I disclosed. And <laughs> yeah, he, sure. he, he promptly freaked out. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm
1: sure. Oh, God. <laughs> and within about 10 minutes, the whole living room was full of his friends. <laughs> We're just talking about startups in Silicon Valley. And, yeah. and it was awesome. I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. It was, it was so fun.
0: <laughs> Free business advice. I love it. Um, speaking of business advice, what has been... What have you learned or, I guess... What has been the hardest or most challenging part to take this concept and scale it, right? And get to where you are today, but still keep it local, right? Because that's the importance of it. Um, And also creating a culture where it feeds down to the host, right? Or feeds not down, but feeds to the host from like everyone that works with you to all the hosts, because you and Brian obviously can't touch every part of it.
1: Well, I think you accomplish that by starting inside out, meaning that whatever we expect from our community out in the world, we first have to expect from ourselves inside the company. And the most poignant example of that would be um, the values that we have, that we we hire by, that we, we live by. And the first one on the list is literally called be a host. And it's about how we host each other as team members, as collaborators, as departments, as, as one company that's creating the service for our community out in the world. And if we're going to you know, hold our host community to certain expectations, um, so too we need to do with ourselves internally. So I, I think we're you know, deeply rooted in this idea that like, it's all inside out and we need to practice what we preach. Got
0: it. And how have you evolved? Like, what, what have been the most exciting things that you've done that you can highlight? I know a bunch of announcements recently came out and I know you added the experience, experience levels and um, just talk to us about some of the highlights along the way of how you've taken this concept and bettered it.
1: Sure. Um, I mean, there's some practical things. Like, I'm, I'm very proud of all the language support that we've added because it's such a global community. I mean, we're, we're in every country other than North Korea, like Sudan, Iran, Ryan, a couple of others on the fact list, but, um, it's such a global brand that we need to be, you know, localized everywhere, which is, you know, there's not a lot of companies that have to be everywhere all at once. Um, so there's things like that that I'm, I'm, I'm proud of, um, beyond the sort of nuts and bolts, I think experiences is a fascinating addition to the story because hosts over the years have been offering experiences, uh, but very informally, meaning that if you book with them, they'll eventually share with you once you arrive. Oh, by the way, you can also do this with me. I'm happy to take you out on this trip. And in fact, um, one other new year's Eve, I traveled to Costa Rica on Airbnb and I stayed with a host who was a retired professional surfer. I mean, this guy was legit. (laughs) And, um, uh, uh, you know, Got to to, to uh, take lessons and got to actually, you know, actually go surfing. Um, but all this stuff was hard to find; it was never discoverable. And so, experiences actually changed that radically. It turned that all upside down and actually created a whole marketplace just for hosts that have some local insight to share, some local knowledge, a local something that can can help answer the question. Okay, now that I'm here, what can I do? And experiences that answer that question in a very Airbnb way. Um, you'll, you'll, you won't find any of the kind of big box commoditized kind of touristy kind of things on there. It's all like original local content created and hosted by our community. So very proud about that. Yeah. And then, and then leading into um, today's announcements, um, it's a big day for us. Um, many months of, of hard work on behalf of our, our many teams in the company to help get ready for this major travel rebound that's, that's coming, um, you know, summer, summer travels almost upon us. Right. And we know, we know there's a lot of changes in the way that people are thinking about traveling, want to book their travel and discover where to go. And so today we announced um, a bunch of new options that allow for flexible travel. Mm-hmm. So with the advent of remote work and zoom conferencing and kids learning over zoom, suddenly families are no longer anchored to certain places. You don't have to, if you don't have to commute to an office, then suddenly your imagination can start to go places. Well, if we don't have to live exactly here, where could we go? And I think a lot of families are having that conversation right now and turning to us to book stays that are, are longer than usual.
0: right? Because a home
1: is more than just a vacation now. A home is also a workplace, and it's also an education center <laughs> for kids. Yep. Um, and so we're seeing families take advantage of that. Uh, as they book their summer travel, it's no longer about a week somewhere; it's about a month, two or three months somewhere.
0: Yep. As a mom of three, let me tell you, I'm trying to figure out where I can take these little guys out of here for a while. So, well,
1: uh, now you can, now you can search Airbnb um, not only by just uh, flexible criteria, but also by type of listing. So, you can now look start your search not by where you want to go, but by the type of place you want to stay in.
0: That's
1: cool. And. We've been lucky enough to have a bunch of very unusual and very quirky, unique categories emerge over the years, including one of my favorites, tree houses. So you can search now by tree houses. You can search by castles. You can search by teepees or yurts or boats or villas. Uh, the list goes on and on
0: what do you think is the coolest place that you have on your site? Is there, I mean, it's hard to pick like, a, I know it's hard to pick a favorite child, but like, Oh my gosh.
1: <laughs> I remember, um, at certain points there was a, a tugboat on the Seine in Paris. Oh, that's cool. Um, literally get stay on this, this ant, like old antique tugboat, uh, with this, uh, Parisian host. And, uh, this, your view out the window was all of Paris. It was absolutely amazing. Um, but I, you know, there's tree houses in California and around the world. There's, um, castles throughout Europe. There's actually private islands that you can book on our site that are completely affordable. <laughs> um, believe it or not, you go in with a couple friends and you end up paying like a hundred bucks a night for a private island all to yourself.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. And so just because we are a hospitality magazine, so I have to ask this not to be controversial, but you know, what do you say to those that believe you guys get away with more because you're not a hotel. Um, But at the same time, you've evolved to be very much a hospitality company in many ways. So, you know, what's your thought process on that? Has that been part of it to become more, I mean, obviously, hospitality is at the core of what you do, but to evolve, to have, you know, different services and, you know, um, levels and ratings and everything, again, back to that trust that you started
1: with. Yeah, I think we've evolved so much in the last... Uh, 13 years of doing this and will continue to evolve. I mean, that's the nature of, of technology is that right. it's never static. It's never, never the same. It's always, it's always improving. And I think, you know, if today was an example of that, um, we are in a constant state of improvement and we're always making the service better for our hosts and our guests and the communities we operated in. All
0: right. Okay. So we're almost at time, but a couple of quick questions more about you. Um, What's one thing about you that most people may not know?
1: The one thing people don't usually know about me is that uh, my dog is named Baylo And the Bailo is also the name of our logo, kind of like Nike has the swoosh. We have the Baylo It's the first four letters of the word belong. Uh, and our mission is about creating belonging anywhere. Uh, so my, my pup is named Baylo. People often ask what came first, the logo or the dog, and it will remain a mystery.
0: Oh, I was just going to ask that question. Um, how do you and Brian still work well together? Like, are you, each other's yin to yang Do you collaborate on a lot of, you know, talk through everything still?
1: I think it's not only Brian and I, but it's Brian, Nate, and I. Right. And we're all still active in the company. We're all still involved. And as we like to say, it's a three-legged stool. If you took away one of the legs, stool gets a little wobbly. Yeah.
0: Love it. And how do you um, continue to stay inspired and creative um, and keep pushing innovation within your company?
1: I think the best way to stay connected and inspire innovation is to stay connected with our host and guest community. Um, We recently formed our host advisory council, uh, which are representatives from across the Airbnb host community, geographically, you know, every kind of demographic you can think of is represented. Um, And through groups like that and the listening sessions that we've done over the last year, it helps us stay connected and keep our feet on the ground. And, you know, if anything, remind ourselves of who we're creating the service for. Um, it's, it's for our hosts and our guests. And, and they often have some of the, the brightest and most innovative ideas because they see things every single day.
0: All right. And do you still paint or draw or anything you used to do in school?
1: I play piano these days. Okay. That's my creative outlet.
0: <laughs> Love it. All right. And we always end this pod with uh, the title of it. So what has been your greatest lesson learned along the way?
1: i say the greatest lesson along the way is the dream big.
0: Love it. Well, thank you so much for taking this time with me today. Um, it was a true privilege. Can't wait to see what you all do next.
1: Well, thank you, Stacey. It was a pleasure being here.
0: Yeah. Thanks. We'll hopefully meet in real life someday soon. Thanks for listening to Hospitality Design's What I've Learned. If you like what you've heard, subscribe and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find full episodes and transcripts at hospitalitydesign.com.